Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our hope is that as we discuss the scriptures, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. All right, welcome back, everyone. We are doing Genesis chapters. Well, we're going to start with chapter 34 and go through chapter 41. The Come Follow Me curriculum actually skips 34, 35, and 36, but we're going to touch on a few things in them because they're there, and I'm not exactly sure why they're skipped, because all the really juicy stuff is still in the other chapters. <laughs> right. So there's still some some salacious stuff in these, but the other chapters get it as well. Some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today is probably... I would say it's probably some of the most scandalous stuff going on in the book of Genesis, right? We start right off the bat with Dinah, so. Well, we've already had Lot's daughter sleeping with him. That's true. Is this really more scandalous than that? I don't think so. Well, and not necessarily, but it, yeah. uh, uh, you know, maybe on a different level here, we've got the actual sons of Israel, the fathers of the 12 tribes involved in a lot of this stuff. You know, these stories aren't often brought up when we talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. Yeah, that's true. And we also had Rebecca and Jacob deceiving Isaac. Right. And he's supposed to be the prophet and he's deceived. Right. What, what does that do to our theology? How does that work? Yeah, there, there's a lot of those things that come up. You know, when we really get into it, you're like, oh, okay, so we've got some humans doing human stuff here, right? Yeah. 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 So... We continue the story of Jacob and his family here. Isaac at this point is has not died yet. He will die in these chapters here. We're going to come to that and tell more of the story of Jacob. But really, the bulk of what this focuses on are, are Jacob's sons, particularly Joseph, but uh, the story of his sons and, and how they behave. There's a major contrast between the behavior of Joseph and the behavior of his brothers. And that really comes out in, in an interesting way, not just in the narrative, but even with how the text of the Bible, or I should say, of our version of the Old Testament is constructed in Genesis, the order of the chapters and, and exactly how they're laid out. So there's some, some interesting things to bring up with regard to that. So as we get into this, you know, the chapter 34, like we said, is not included in the Come, Follow Me curriculum. But the story here starts off with Dinah, and she is raped here by Sachem. And this becomes catalyst to a whole host of other things that go on. We have Simeon and Levi that respond to this in a violent way. And Jacob reproves them because of the effect it's going to have on their relationship with the people around them. It's interesting because Shechem has, you know, he rapes Dinah, but then he, he wants to marry her. Yeah. And so he, you know, he's told, well, we can't, I can't marry her to you because, and, and this is what should happen next is he should marry her according to custom. 
and but they say well, we can't have her marry you because you're not circumcised. So he he has you know he really wants to marry. There's no problem doing this. He's, he circumcises himself. He has all his men circumcise themselves. Then you get the two boys, you know, Simeon and Levi, they're going to now take advantage of the fact that these guys are all in pain three days later and they're going to cut them down. Right. You know, in the, in the story, it's just Simeon and Levi that go into the city and kill all the men. Yes. I know they're somewhat incapacitated, but it seems to reason here that there are actually more people with Simeon and Levi and they're just the leaders of a group of their servants or, or, family members or friends or so forth that have gone in with them. That seems to be the case here. At the same time, the, you know, Jacob says this is trouble. You know, this spells trouble for him because he has few numbers, you know. And so even whatever number of men you've just mentioned still adds up to few numbers, right? And so, you know, this is going to be a problem for him. He's now going to go away. He's going to flee in fear back to the place where he went last time he was fleeing in fear. He was fleeing from his brother Esau, and he goes to Bethel, and he's going to go there again. So if we take this as truly a second instance of him traveling to Bethel, and we'll, we'll get to this in a bit because we do see a different author here, but if this truly is a second instance of him traveling to Bethel, this might be in response to what his sons just did. It's a way of him going and you know, he literally says purifying here. This is a way of atoning for all the violence they just committed. He does say that he fears the people around him, which this is actually a, a thing that keeps coming up with Jacob, right? He's, he's constantly yes. afraid of being attacked by other people, his brother, um, Laban, and now the people all around them. There's, there's constant, he's constantly afraid of his own demise, and, and that of his family. But, but in every case, it turns out to be an unfounded fear, right? Back with Laban, he was afraid. And Laban says, look, I just wanted to say goodbye to my family. I wasn't going to attack you or, or, or kill you. And then the same with Esau, right? Esau comes and Jacob thinks that he's going to attack him. And then here they go and they travel. And it turns out everybody leaves them alone. Well, this might be ostensibly because... <laughs> He had a couple sons just go in and, and completely destroy and, and kill all the men in this city and then plunder it and, you know, rape and pillage, essentially carry off their wives and children. I mean, this is about as bad as it gets in terms of ancient warfare. And this is what Levi and Simeon have done. And it seems odd to me that Jacob's only response is, hey, you know, you've made everybody want to attack us. Not like, hey, Levi and Simeon, what you did was really, really awful. Like there doesn't seem to be like a moral judgment here. It's simply just like a, there's like just a concern for the consequences as opposed to the morality of the act itself. Whereas Simeon and Levi are more concerned with the morality of the fact that their sister was raped. So th there is an interesting disconnect here for me. Yeah. I mean, the, the Bible stories aren't really, I don't think they're usually about morality. And even though, even the one you say here is about morality is it looks like it's about custom to me, right? It's about what's what's accepted and what's not accepted, to put it in those terms. And also, you know, I think this this return to Bethel, I'm calling it a return. It is from, uh, scholars say, from an author we haven't mentioned yet, which is R. And I don't really know anything about R. Rare. <laughs> but it looks like it is a return. Yeah, 
the rarely occurring author. I really don't know. So, but it looks like it is a return, but I can see why we've seen before these different versions of the same story. And I think we'll see that in, in this, you know, in this week's reading. Yeah. So what's happening here to me in chapter 35 is this is a very temple like moment, right? So he gathers his family. God tells him to go to Bethel, which literally means the house of God. And this is a place where, again, if this is a second time, not just a retelling of, of the only time, this is a place where he's already erected the pillar and he's named it. And this is, this is a place where he believes God lives, right? Because that's where he had this experience and saw God. And so this is sort of in, in one of the, the narratives and, and interpretations of this, this is where he believes God lives. And so he's going there to be with God because that's where he's encountered him. So the idea is that he gathers his family with him. And then he says this, he says, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel that we may make an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak that was near Sechem. There's a bunch of stuff going on here, so I want to go first to the, the concept of the temple worship here, which is the way that it's talked about here would be very familiar to Latter-day Saints. And that would be in the temple tradition, right? So, so consider this. Put away the foreign gods that are among you, right? Purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, which remember means house of God, that I may make an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. You know, an altar in order to burn sacrifices, right? And then we have altars and temples and so forth. So this evokes a lot of temple imagery and custom right here. And we'll get to even more later in the chapter. So we definitely have some proto-temple worship going on here. A lot of this is where our tradition in the Latter-day Saint would come from, from this concept, from these ideas, from this practice. This is a very early conceptualization of those ideas. So it says they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had. Well, okay, these are idols, right? Am, am I right in assuming that? These would be physical idols? Mitchell has it as get rid of all your idols. This is Stephen Mitchell's translation of Genesis. Yeah. And so this really alludes, in my mind, to Rachel, who steals all the idols from her father Laban when she leaves and hides them in the trunk and sits on it and says, I can't get up because I'm having menstrual cramps. And so he leaves them. And then the story kind of ends there with the idols, right? You don't hear any more about them. And it's like, well, why would you tell that story unless there was something later going to happen? And this seems to be at least one of the later things that happens with these idols. They reappear. Where do they reappear? In the children of Leah and Rachel and their handmaids, right? They have taken these as their gods, whereas Jacob is, you know, ostensibly worshiping this one god. Wouldn't he have taught that to his children? Whereas they seem to have gotten this tradition maybe not only from their mothers, but surrounding tribes as well. And Jacob's idea is, hey, you know, you guys don't really understand the covenant, so 
we're going to do this thing. You need to put those all away. We're going to go and you're going to understand who God is. I'm going to take you to Bethel, the house of God, and you're going to have the same experience that I did, right? That's his idea here. It, it kind of, for me, evokes what Abraham was trying to do with Isaac when he took him up on the mount for the sacrifice, right? He was trying to create this mode and this experience that he had with God. He was trying to recreate it for his children. And that's what I think Jacob is doing here. He's trying to recreate this experience for his children. And it's not obvious whether they they really get that, but he is trying, it seems. <laughs> yeah, you brought up the idols showing up earlier in the text and the idea that they, they have to be, you know, something has to happen with these idols later. This is what we call Chekhov's gun, right? And, and the way that that Chekhov repeatedly characterized, you know, writing when, you know, writing to his uh, letters to his contemporaries. The, the most famous version of this says, if in the first act you have hung a pistol on the wall, then in the following one, it should be fired. Yeah. Otherwise, don't put it there. Right. Right? Why, why is there a gun right. in the text if you're not <laughs> going to use it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, yes, we see them we see them performing these rites that look like temple rites to us, right? So they, they get rid of their idols, uh, which means you could see that in terms of setting aside the world because you're going to go away, you know, you're going to go to the, to the sacred mountain, to the, the center of the world. You're going to leave behind the, the profane and go into sacred space and sacred time. And so you leave all of that behind. You purify yourself. There are going to be washings, anointings, whatnot. You put on uh, different clothes and then you go up into the, the place and then there's an altar and God hears the words uh, from your mouth as you as you call. In this case, you know, he's calling out in distress earlier, at least, he says. And now he's going back again with, with his family, as you said. Yeah, there's several other things going on here. But, you know, to continue in the the line of the, the temple worship, you brought up washings and anointings. Uh, Christopher. And and sure enough, we look at verse 14, right? Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. We talked about the symbolism of the pillar uh, last time. And uh, it was said, you know, this is something erected towards heaven. This is axis mundi. This is part of the house of God, right? This is a construction thing, but it's of stone, not brick, like the Tower of Babel, right? But this is a, of the house of God. One of the Commentary said this might be an allusion to male fertility because then we also have it always paired with references to trees, which sure enough, we see two trees show up in this chapter here, oak trees. Those oak trees being a symbolism of female fertility or the divine feminine. And so, you know, I think that's possible, but I think we're talking more about like physical structure symbolic of the house of God here in, in, in my mind. And so he gets this pillar and it says he poured out a drink offering on it, which to me is probably wine. That's how Mitchell has it. But the symbolism is a washing, right? The idea is that you're washing and poured oil on it. Okay. So he's washing and then anointing it with oil. And so the, this is this mode of washing and anointing that, that then, you know, really, seems to heavily influence our temple worship as well. That's kind of the idea here. So the other part of this story is that we get this repetition of the phrase from the Lord. He says, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And I think there's a 
couple things that be going on here. And we, we mentioned before that this could be just a different author telling the same story as before. Or if this truly is a second uh, trip to Bethel, like this is a return to Bethel, which, you know, the more that I look at it, that does seem to make a little more sense in the arc of the narrative, because before it was just Jacob there and he had this experience, and now he's trying to bring his family back in order for them to experience it as well. But if this is truly a second occurrence, the Lord is, is renewing the covenant here, and he's saying, hey, you were supposed to be calling yourself Israel this whole time, right? Because I gave you that name and you haven't been living by that name. So now we're going to renew that. This is your name. Well, sure enough, we have a, a temple symbolism here, right? Of when you enter into the temple, God gives him a new name. And that's the name he's known by when he worships with God. And sure enough, as we continue in the chapters of Genesis, the name Israel is used much more often, and Jacob still appears, but not you know not near as much as as Israel throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Yeah, you know, there's something else here. It's that I know we're still in chapter what is it, 35. Uh, I'm looking at the way that Mitchell has divided up the text, and it doesn't even have chapter numbers. The return to Bethel, as I mentioned, uh, is ascri- ascribed to R. But now that we're talking about Jacob becoming Israel, this is according to P. And so if we go back to Jacob wrestling with God, that was according to J. So when he's called Israel in, you know, in the wrestling with God episode, that's J. And here he's being called Israel in an account by P. Right. So it looks like they are two different accounts of the same occurrence. Yeah, could be. So then we have the death of Rachel. They set out from Bethel, and when there's still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel goes into labor. She's in a lot of pain. She's told by her midwife, don't be afraid. You have another son. I'm not sure how that works. She's going to die, but I guess she can die happy knowing she had a son. I know that for me, you know, my, uh, my grandmother, my father's mother, did know by telegram that she had a grandson. She knew of my birth, and she died you know, right after that. Hmm. So she at least knew. And so here uh, she's, you know, Rachel is having the son and she's calling the son Ben-Oni, son of my misfortune. But then she dies and the father renames the son Ben-Yamin, son of the right hand. Yeah. And then she's buried on the side of the road and he sets up a stone over a grave. And you in pre-show discussion, you thought this was uh, fun. The same stone that is on Rachel's grave to this day. Yeah, it says, which is there to this day, which is a a common phrase used in writing ancient quote-unquote histories and also evokes some etiological functions here to say, hey, this is where this came from. You can go and see the stone. That's where it came from. It came because that's a you know, that's erected over Rachel's grave. You can go and see it to this day, right? The idea is, well, what is this day? When is this being written? Well, you know, who knows? <laughs> right. And then we have uh, another episode where Reuben sleeps with Bilhah, who's Jacob's concubine. So he's sleeping with his father's concubine. Yeah, this seems to be a little bit of an insert here because there's no discussion of it at all. It just says this happened and Israel knew about it. But it does come up later when Israel gives blessings to his sons 
and he references this as a you know a reason why Reuben loses out on certain blessings that he would have gotten otherwise. And we have the death of Isaac at 180 and old and contented, right? Yeah. And then this is really significant. His sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Here they are together. Right. Yeah. So the last we heard of Esau was that, you know, he kind of rode off into the sunset and Jacob still uh, didn't trust him, you know, thought he was still looking to, to kill him because Esau's vow was to kill Jacob after his father died. And so it would seem that here at this point, if Jacob is still concerned about Esau killing him, this would be the time for Esau to do it. But it seems like they come together for this. They then separate in the next chapter. They separate their families, their tribes, or or their clans at this point, whatever we want to call them. But not out of any animosity, right? Just yeah, exactly. That doesn't there, the text doesn't indicate that there's any strife or animosity going on here. Rather, they do it, you know, to prevent animosity between their families because of the the size of their possessions. So it could be that we read into this that that Jacob has finally kind of gotten over. Not only his fear of his brother, but maybe his uh, resentment for the way that you know his brother threatened him. Uh, unclear. It's interesting to me to note also, just to note that Esau is there, that he's still part of the story. We we make the story about Jacob, we forget about Esau. He's still there. He's still part of the story. Yeah, and that you know becomes front and center in the next chapter. That's right which spends all these verses talking about Esau's family and descendants. Which is important because he was told that, he w- that his descendants would become a nation. Yes. There, you have to put in the text a fulfillment of the prophecy of the promise. You know, God keeps all of his promises, so you have to put in the text that this happened. And so they do. They become, they go away to, how do you pronounce this, Ben? Sir? Sir. I would say sir. Yeah, I don't know how it's pronounced. I do know it's the land. I, I guess I should have looked into that. What I wanted to know is where is it, right? And and that was what was important to me. And the answer is it is between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. Right. Now, Ben, you and I have, you and I have traveled in that area, mm-hmm. and we know what that looks like. The Esau is called Edom, which is red. Mm-hmm. It's red sandstone there. Mm-hmm. And his people are the Edomites. That's right. Yeah, and it's it's all red. And by the way, if you have if you have been to southern Utah, it looks Very just like similar. that. Uh-huh. Right. In fact, there's a Moab. There's a Moab in in that region, and there's a Moab in in Utah. Yeah, the geography and the topology, you know, of Utah and then Israel's very. <laughs> there's been a lot talked about the the similarities there because you have a, a freshwater lake that goes into a saltwater, just like you have Sea of Galilee that goes into the Dead Sea. You know. Same kind of concept there. But yes, between Dead Sea and Gulf of Aqaba, you have this region that in, in a certain area has these these slot canyons, just like in Utah, there's some slot canyons. Well, uh, an ancient civilization placed themselves and, and built their city within those slot canyons. These were along certain trade routes. Over time, some things changed there that made that work anymore. But they built their city in there, and these were the Nabataeans. And so today, you know, this is one of the most amazing things you could ever go see if you travel. You can go to Petra, 
and see a bunch of the things that the tombs that they have carved into the sides of this red sandstone in these canyons. And then you can also see a lot of the other things that they carved their dwellings and there's an amphitheater and everything. Definitely one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. I had seen pictures and pictures and pictures of it and none of them did it justice seeing it in person. But, but anyway, I, I bring this all up because one of the ideas is that the Edomites might be related in some way, if not, you know, precursor to or part of or fed into or influenced the civilization of the Nabataeans. And that's interesting, too, because we have that uh, the idea that Ishmael is the, if not the physical ancestor of the Muslims, then at least the spiritual ancestor of the Muslims. But the possibility of being the physical ancestor of the Muslims is there, not because we think the Edomites are Arabs or have anything to do with Arabs, because we don't, but because although the Nabataeans do come from uh, the Hejaz, right, they came up from the Hejaz to, again, what's Transjordan, what today, Petra's in, in Jordan today. And so it could be, that the that the Edomites and the Nabataeans are in some sense related again they that they were part of the same peoples or one fed into the other or something like that as you mentioned and so the Nabataeans or the Edomites rather uh, can be the the ancestors of the Muslims if as some scholars are saying today the prophet Muhammad did not come out of Arabia but out of Petra and this is cutting edge scholarship this is some of uh, what the Quranic scholars and scholars of late antiquity are putting forward today. But again, even if even if that's not the case, even if that's not the case, we do have the Nabataeans that they come from the Hejaz. I would say it would help explain the idea behind him receiving influence through merchant and trade relations and, and right. stuff like that. So, you know, being from that place, that was a very, you know, right along the trade routes, uh, heavily traveled not that the Hejaz wasn't, right? Right. But but one of the things that the scholars are seeing is that some of the geography in the Quran just doesn't some of the descriptions of the of the way things are in the Quran don't match up with an Arabian setting. Mm. And they do match up with this Transjordanian setting. Mm. So after the the generations, the genealogy here of Esau. We now come to, you know, like a paragraph marker, right? This is starting a whole new story. In fact, it says that. It says, this is the story of the family of Jacob. Okay, so here we start in uh, discussing more about what happens with the children of Jacob. Now, we did get a little bit of that before with, with Dinah and then the birth of all of the children, but that was all in the context, again, of, of Jacob precursor to this story. So this story focuses, or it begins to focus mostly on Joseph. And there's this really odd insertion of the story of Judah and Tamar. And it really comes across as completely out of place. It breaks up the narrative of Joseph. There's not really any continuity there. And Christopher, you were even mentioning that in, in the translation you're reading, it doesn't even put it in that order. Like it, it, what does it do? Does it put Judah and Tamar before this? Yeah. So we have Reuben sleeps with Bilhah from J, which is fragmentary. Uh -huh. And then we have Judah and Tamar from an early source. And then we have Joseph and his brothers from an early source. Yeah. Yeah. So it throws 
chapter 38 before chapter 37, so to speak, in what we would look at in our Genesis chapter ordination here. And so for us not to break up the story of Joseph, we'll cover Judah and Tamar now, right? Yeah, we can cover Judah and Tamar now. And then we'll contrast with Joseph. Yeah, well, there's several things going on here with the reason, I think, and, and it seems, you know, we, we looked up, and this is supported by several scholars that comment on this. The reason it's structured this way, throwing in the story of Judah and Tamar in the middle of the story of Joseph, is precisely for the purpose of contrasting these two characters and their stories. And it's posited that this might have had a particular political purpose. And the political purpose would have been that the northern kingdom of Israel, which was largely the tribe of Joseph with uh, King Jeroboam, they were seeking to legitimize their claim to the kingship, to the throne. And one of the ways that they do that is by putting forth the story, the narrative of Joseph as being the legitimate heir, birthright of Israel, of Jacob, you know, the one who is supposed to inherit that that line, that legacy, that promise, the, you know, the kingship, so to speak. And that's contrasted with the story of Judah and Temar, because Judah of the southern kingdom was the one that, you know, for so long had claimed the, the kingship and, and the royal line. And so we see this story contrasting the, the character of Joseph with the character of Judah. So let's let's go in and look at... Before we do, there's one other thing, Ben, I wanted to bring up, and that is the, the interpretation that you gave of why this is here is very much how it, it's not Christological, right? Yeah. Uh, the way that Christians usually read the Old Testament, we Christians, is by reading, you know, Christologically, right? Reading Christ into these stories. And so let's contrast the story that you gave, which is this political answer to why is this text here, right, with the Christological one, where Tamar is important, like Ruth later, right, uh, for a different reason. Yeah, so tell us more about that. Well, okay, so the so what I mean is Tamar is going to be from, it's, it's going to be from Tamar that we get the Davidic line. Right, through Perez. And Tamar, like Ruth, right, so Tamar, like Ruth, is, is going to be a widow. Tamar is the wife of the first son of Judah. And that son, it, it, not much is said about him, Ur, right? Ur, it says, was Judah's firstborn. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's all it says about Ur. And I, I kind of have to chuckle a little bit because there's just no detail here. And, and it's very typical of uh, a lot of the ancient texts, I mean, even, you know, biblical narratives, to ascribe things like a, a person's death to God regardless. And so you can, you can look at a person that died and you can say, maybe there were a bunch of stories about how terrible a person Ur was. And so if he dies, you can say, well, that's the Lord did it, right? You know, the Lord caused his death. Whereas if a righteous person dies, right, you know, you can come up with all kinds of other reasons. But because Ur is a wicked person and he just dies, apparently, out of nowhere, it doesn't, it doesn't say how he dies, 
then it must have been the Lord that did this because of his wickedness. And so I just I just think it's a really interesting, you know, assertion there. Yeah, I chuckled too, Ben, because partly because of Mitchell's translation, you have, but Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, and the Lord made him die. And so just the wording and just this matter-of-factly, you know, stated, God made him die because he was wicked. And And then the other thing about it is, I thought, well, let's contrast that with all the people who are, aren't wicked, who the Lord doesn't make die, which of course is an empty set, right? Everyone dies, yeah. which is to your yeah, point, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and, and then it brings up the other question. Well, there's lots of wicked people that are outlined throughout these chapters, but you know, and they don't it doesn't die. say the Lord made them die. Right. Yeah. So exactly. Or, or they do die, right? They do die, but it doesn't say sure. they were wicked and God made them die. Right. So the custom is that if a man uh, dies and leaves his wife behind, especially if they don't have any children, the responsibility is of the man's brother to marry that wife, that widow, so that she can have children, but they won't be the heirs of the biological father. They'll be the heirs of the deceased brother. And... So this Onan, so the the second brother, he has this responsibility, this obligation that Judah, you know, enforces upon him to go and marry Tamar so that she will have children that are heirs to Ur. But of course he doesn't want to do this. Well, Onan decides to do this in a way that, it, you know, ends up not impregnating her. But the Lord, in, in the narrative here, the Lord sees this act, the fact that Onan refuses to impregnate Tamar because he doesn't want the children to be his brother's children because they would be born to his brother's widow. He, he purposefully does this for that. And that is seen as such a great wickedness by the Lord in the text that Onan dies as well. Well, not just that he dies. Remember, it's just like Ur was so wicked in the Lord's sight, the Lord made him die. Puts him to death. Now, yeah. Onan, Onan knew that the child would not count as his. So whenever he slept with his brother widow, he spilled his seed in order not to uh, produce a child for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, and he made him die too. So Judah has a third son, and he's like, hey, I don't want to lose my third son to this woman. I don't know what's going on with her. And so he sends Tamar, says, go back to your father and stay with him. My third son isn't even a man yet. He's not grown up enough. And so sort of the implication here is that Judah is, is telling her, you can go back to your father's house. When my son is old enough, then he will marry you, I think is the implication here. But this is a bit of a deception because there doesn't seem to be the intention of doing that because... Again, he's afraid that his third son's going to die. So when he doesn't make good on his promise, she performs a counter-deception so that she can secure her place. She's fighting for her rights in a sense. She wants to, to fight for her right for her place in the family. And so what does she do? She poses as a prostitute. And when he visits her, she's veiled, so he doesn't uh, know who she is. And he promises to pay her and he leaves uh, in lieu of payment, uh, what is this, his staff and something else? His ring, his signet ring. His ring, that's right, <laughs> exactly, his signet ring. So he leaves these things, and then he cannot find her. 
And the people say, there was no temple prostitute here. What are you talking about? And then somebody comes and tells him, she's been whoring and now she's pregnant. And he says, well, let's deal with her. What do, what do they want to do, burn her? Yeah, he says, let her be burned. Let her be burned. And then she comes and says, actually, you're the John. Do you recognize this staff and ring? And he says, oh, wait, uh, never mind, right? <laughs> now he doesn't want her to be burned. You're right. Because her children are his. Right. She's now regained her place in the family, the one that that she was cheated out of by Judah, who didn't want to give up. He didn't want to lose his third son. And I can sympathize with Judah. Every son that I married to this woman dies. Yeah, it's just another one of those strange stories, though. So often when we might read through the Bible, we might try to find ways to like justify the the horrible things that the people do. But, you know, especially in the case of Tamar, I think you make a good point that she is is trying to see to her own security and things that she deserves by virtue of her relation to the family in the, the way that maybe the only way that she knows how. And so there doesn't seem to be quite the like moral judgment on her for this, whereas there does seem to be a contrast between the character of Judah and how he's acting towards Tamar here versus what we get to next with how Joseph acts. There's there's definitely sexual impropriety here with the story of Judah, and that's contrasted with how Joseph uh, conducts himself. That's right. So it is a story about justice on the one hand. On the other hand, its placement suggests this contrast between Judah and Joseph. Right. And, 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 you know, there's something else to this, which really doesn't come up until next week. And that is that this, in some sense, prepares Judah for what's coming next, right? When, when Joseph is in Egypt and, and he, Judah goes among his brothers to Egypt and in next week's reading. Yeah, we'll get to some of the discussions and you know roles of Judah that he plays there and discuss you know what this says what this might say about his character but but not necessarily so much about his character as what it is that is trying to be said about how should I put this the nature of the tribe of Judah in in a broader sense um because remember these are all stories about the founding of the Israelite people. And so depending on who's putting forth the narratives, they can be trying to present a certain way of looking at stories that legitimize certain claims versus others. And uh, there are things that are put in about the way that Judah acts that legitimize Judah's claims. And there are things that are put in that the way that Joseph acts that legitimize Joseph's claims and then, then counter each other and so a lot of this narrative comes out in a political sense when you get later into the history of, of Israel. Like you said, we're going to talk about next time about how there are some Christological ways of uh, interpreting the stories and how they foreshadow uh, types of Christ. And so that, that definitely will be um, some interesting things to, to bring out with how Christians will, will read Christ into these narratives in order to, to bring out that that concept, that idea, that symbolism. There's one more thing here, Ben, before we move on to the story of Joseph. And that is that Tamar is going to have twins, right? Yes. And so when she's when she's going to give birth, one of them puts out a hand 
And the midwife takes it and ties a scarlet thread around the wrist and says, this one came out first. But just then, Mitchell uh, translates, he pulled back his hand and his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So she named him Peretz, breach. And then his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his wrist, and she named him Zera, bright one. Yeah, we have some recycled echoes uh, here again of twins. So not just Jacob and Esau, but but other brother pairs uh, previous to this, you know, even Isaac and, and Ishmael and even Cain and Abel. You know, we don't get the full story of, of these brothers, but there's definitely a rivalry going on right from the outset of in their birth. <laughs> you know, the first one starts to come out, but then the next one kind of you know, supplants him. One of the things that's, that's interesting here in the imagery is that a, a, a red or a scarlet thread is tied around his hand. Well, that for me, you know, evokes the idea of Esau, right? Being born and he came out red or hairy. And so that's where the, the idea of the Edom, you know, Edom came from being red. Right. And so it's kind of a return to that, echoing that theme again. That and the struggle to to be the firstborn. And so I think, you know, the, these stories in Genesis are, are telling us over and over again that the blessings that, that we are heir to are not necessarily about birthright or even about lineage in, in some sense, right? There are some, you know, reading these stories Christologically, the lineage becomes uh, more important. But it looks to me like it's not about lineage. It's not about birth order. It's something else. Yeah, that's definitely a good takeaway from it. I think that the way that the stories are sometimes interpreted and maybe even some of the ways that they were written and constructed was to try to establish some legitimacy from a lineage perspective. And so that's why we have a lot of the the things the way they're constructed. But because of all the ambiguity and twisting and and supplanting going on, right, uh, with Jacob and, and so forth, we we come away from it realizing that, oh, you know, there's so many exceptions to the quote unquote rule of of primogenitor birthright that it ends up not being a rule at all. Right. So now we go into the story of Joseph. Joseph, which is another iteration of this, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. One, another another iteration of the same story. Yeah. Now, I have a little bit of a hard time with the idea of breaking up the story of Joseph. We'll, we'll only cover part of it this week and the rest of it next week. But we go through to, you know, to mention it up front, we go through what? Where do we end up this week? We end up with him being in charge of the land of Egypt. Just put in charge. Yeah, put in charge by Pharaoh. And so setting the stage for his brothers to come because there's a famine in the land and he's in charge of all the food. But we start off with him, the beloved of his father. The text tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his other sons because he was a child of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his other sons, they hated him and they would not even greet him. Yeah. And so, Ben, I know you want to talk about the coat of many colors, and so do I. Yeah, absolutely. This is, uh, this is commonly translated coat of many colors, but the actual Hebrew of this is it's uncertain. It's ambiguous. The NRSV translates it as a long robe with sleeves. 
I think the idea here, whether we're talking about actual different colors, um, like we would conceptualize of it, you know, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, or whether we're, you know, colors are a euphemism for something else, or just a, a mistranslation of a different concept or idea that, again, the Hebrew is ambiguous or uncertain. We don't really know. They don't know exactly what it means because the word's not used in enough other contexts for the translators to to triangulate its its uh, certain meaning, right? But the the imagery here is that of a a royal garment, and so the idea is that Jacob gives to his son Joseph this garment, and I don't mean garment. I shouldn't use that word because I don't I don't mean it in a Latter Day Saint context of like a priesthood garment just this clothing that is a a royal investiture and that is marking him as the heir as the one who receives the birthright this is quite possibly a detail added into the story or maybe you know maybe it finds its its historical roots but it's a detail highlighted in the story to bring out this idea that Joseph is the one who is legitimate heir to the throne, so to speak, you know, that that he has the rightful kingship. And this comes into play when you have the split of the kingdom of Israel into the northern kingdom and, and the southern kingdom, or the kingdom of Judah, and then the northern kingdom, which is reigned by Jeroboam, who is a descendant of Joseph through Ephraim. So again, this story, this idea here of this coat that is given, it's this royal coat or this royal garment that indicates that Joseph is the one that through who the the royal line should go. That is contested uh, politically by the descendants of Judah for various reasons, and we'll see those play out in the story, and we'll talk about those next time when we get into Joseph meeting with his brothers in Egypt, and then the blessings and everything. So that will fit that narrative better. But again, the idea here is that, that Joseph is, is the one, the legitimate heir to this. And so that's why he's given the coat. You know, there's a part in here where it really outlines uh, Joseph's character. He's 17 years old. He's the younger brother, and he is annoying as heck, right? Like, he, he's, he tattles on his brothers. It says he, he brought a bad report of them to their father. And then he's constantly telling them, of all these dreams he has where he's better than them, you know, like you all bowed down to me in my dream, you know, and, and it's like a, it's like a passive aggressive way <laughs> of saying I'm better than you. And to me, it just, it, it keeps bringing up Nephi in my mind Oh yeah, because like, you know, Nephi is constantly telling his brothers, you know, well, I, I had these revelations and the Lord told me that I'm supposed to rule over you. Right. And that's like basically what Joseph is saying here. And Nephi knows those stories, right? Or knows this story. Yes. And Nephi knows those stories. Exactly. And so, in fact, there is so much that we could talk about because the story of Joseph, and we'll probably get to this more next time, but the story of Joseph is so central to the narrative of the Book of Mormon, beginning with Nephi, that it really, really brings out a lot of Latter day Saint tradition and themes surrounding Joseph and his birthright, and then his his sons Ephraim and Manasseh. And so this idea that Joseph has these dreams, these revelations, and that his brothers resent him for it, 
you know, that's right off the bat how it kind of goes in the Book of Mormon. And so the Book of Mormon kind of takes that theme and goes with it and then develops a lot of the stuff out of this idea of Joseph being gone into Egypt so he could save his family and so forth. So like I said, we'll, we'll talk about that more next time. Ben, are you sure you don't want to go into that this week? Because, you know, so we're, we're all pretty familiar with the story of Joseph, right? Yeah. It might help to, to, for you to share that this week so that as, as listeners go into the reading of both this week's reading and next reading, the whole Joseph cycle, they might have that in mind. And I might have more to say in comparing the Joseph cycle in the Quran and the, and the Bible next week. So maybe you could go into that now. Sure. Okay, so if people want to look into the Book of Mormon development of this narrative and this idea, there's several chapters in, in the Book of Mormon that would treat on this. The first one would be 2 Nephi chapter 4. And this is the discussion that Lehi gives about Joseph. Because in the story, Lehi gets the records, right? The brass plates. And he reads them and he learns things from him, you know, he, he didn't know before. And one of them, he sees his genealogy and he realizes he's a descendant of Joseph. And so this idea that he's a descendant of Joseph informs their whole identity as a people and, and gets really passed on to Nephi. And, and he, he runs with it, and then it, it seeps into their whole culture of the Nephites and, and them believing that they truly are the recipients of this blessing. And then it creates all these, these problems and conflicts between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So like I said, it, it really underpins the whole narrative of the Book of Mormon, understanding this idea of this tension between Joseph and his brothers, and then the fact that Joseph is sold in to Egypt, or in the Book of Mormon narrative, it actually doesn't mention the fact that he's sold in. It just says that the Lord took him into Egypt. So this was foreseen and planned by the Lord that Joseph would be taken into Egypt with the express purpose that he would then be able to save his family from the famine many years later that the Lord knew was going to happen. How this becomes represented in the Book of Mormon is when you get to Ether chapter 13, there's a whole discussion from Moroni about prophecies, and, and he ties them into Joseph, and, and he talks about how, well, you know, the same way that Joseph came out of the land of Israel, which, you know, anyway, the land of his fathers, into Egypt, he did so so that later he could save his family uh, from destruction, from the famine, and so they could come down and he could save them. And so the idea here is that, well, then the Lord took Lehi and his family out of Jerusalem into a far land so that in the last days, they could metaphorically save the rest of the house of Israel. And so this idea becomes expressed within the Latter-day Saint concept of patriarchal blessings and being declared as part of a tribe. And so when someone gets their patriarchal blessing, it says, you know, you are part of this tribe, and it would be one of the 12 tribes. And, you know, 99% or, or close to that, people are going to be Ephraim, uh, and then sometimes Manasseh, but almost always Ephraim. And the idea is that everybody in the last days first becomes part of the tribe of Joseph, because they have the responsibility to then 
take the blessings of the gospel to the rest of the tribes, to the rest of the house of Israel. And what becomes encompassed in that is to the rest of the human family, right? This is the fulfillment in Latter-day Saint doctrine and, and concept of the the Abrahamic covenant where it says, in your seed, all of the earth, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so this is where the whole Latter-day Saint idea of taking the gospel to the world and, and blessing them through that, that we have that mandate to do that. That's where that sort of dovetails into this narrative from the Old Testament. And this whole idea really heavily underpins that identity for Latter-day Saints as being of the tribe of Ephraim, or like I said, in a lot of cases, Manasseh, as those responsible for blessing others with the restoration of the gospel, right? It's the those that were taken away, and the idea is that the Book of Mormon is the manifestation of that grain, right, that was stored up to be saved for the days of, of famine. So it's brought back in order to save the house of Israel from the famine of the Word of God in the last days. That's really insightful, Ben. And it, and it underscores, again, the, the point of emphasis we made last week is that the, the blessing of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or as the Quran would have it, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and, and including Ishmael as prophets, that it would be to be a blessing to others. So the blessing is to bless others. Right. Yeah, exactly. That is the idea that becomes part of the identity of the Nephites and uh, really, like I said, underpins the whole narrative of the Book of Mormon when you really get into it and who the Nephites believe they are. It, be, it starts to become a problem, right? You know, they don't just see themselves as responsible for blessing others. They see themselves as blessed. And so because they're blessed, you know, it, it becomes this whole that's where the pride cycle idea comes from and 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 everything. And when we were doing the Book of Mormon, you know, we we identified a lot of this concept of that the origin of a lot of the tension between the Nephites and Lamanites was from this Nephite superiority complex. That, you know, they believed that they were better because Nephi had this idea that he was supposed to rule over them. So the Nephites are always kind of positing themselves as as the better people than the Lamanites, and that that causes problems, just their attitude does. So that's really insightful. I'm glad you brought that up. And and again, you know, when it comes to uh, the the Quran, the Joseph cycle, the Joseph is the only story of a prophet that's developed in a full narrative is Joseph. Mm. And so, as we go through and get through the, the the whole story, you know, by next week, I'll probably have some things to say about that. Oh yeah. But for now, let's go into the the, the fairly familiar story. Uh, of Joseph and see what we can pull out here that might give insight into this text. Yeah, so like we were saying, Joseph has these dreams. He tells them to his brothers. They are not very happy about it. They see him as this, you know, uppity, you know, insufferable, annoying little brother. <laughs> yeah, he's the quintessential annoying little brother. Oh, yeah. And uh, then he tells it to his father, and the dream goes like this, you know, I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars, and they all bowed down to me. And the implication there is, you know, Jacob immediately interprets this dream, because it seems obvious, right? The idea is that Joseph's whole family would bow down to him. 
And this includes his mother as the moon, right? That's the idea, that she would be the moon. Well, what's interesting about this is that Rachel, this at this point in the narrative, if we're to take these chapters chronologically, Rachel's dead. And so his mother's not around, but Jacob talks about her as if she's still alive. So this is, this is evidence of two things. One, that the chapters in Genesis are not necessarily put in chronological order, and we see things out of chronological order all the time. Sometimes it's just incidental to the a flow of a story, you know, like we said, you know, there's different authors and you got to weave it all together. Other times like this, I think it's with a specific purpose in mind. And the reason you put this narrative here at this time is, again, to legitimize Joseph's claim or the, the descendants of Joseph's claim to the throne, to the ruling of the, the house of Israel. I'll bring in one small difference. Well, it's just, I think it's a significant difference in the, the Quranic narrative so far. And that is that when Joseph has his dreams, he actually goes to his father and he tells him. And his father says, don't tell your brothers. <laughs> they'll, try, they'll want to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, sure enough. You know, they, here comes the dreamer. And, and this actually, again, evokes language from the Book of Mormon, where Laman and Lamuel are constantly calling their father a visionary man, right? And so this is the idea that these dreams are sort of the hallmark of somebody who's disturbed or delusional. Somebody who's thinking that they're greater than they are delusional at the fact. Right. He's having delusions of grandeur. Yes, there you go. Delusions of grandeur. (laughs) So his brothers kind of plot to kill him, but then we have a couple of them at different times interject. We have Reuben and Judah that both say at different times, hey, you know, let's let's not kill him. Let's, uh, Let's just sell him. There's different iterations of this story you know, that have been popularized and, and, and retold and stuff. And sometimes they ascribe different motives or different ways of viewing Joseph to his different brothers. You know, maybe Reuben was saying this because he really wanted to protect Joseph. Um, he was just trying to satisfy his brothers by saying this, but he really intended to protect Joseph and, and make sure he wasn't sold or wasn't killed. Um, same kind of thing with Judah. But then they decided to toss him in a pit. Yeah, and they strip him of his robe. Remember the symbolism of the robe? That's right. So they take that off of him, right? In Joseph's narrative, this is the idea, hey, I'm, I'm being wrongfully stripped of my right to rule the family. And they're saying, you don't deserve this. You're not the older brother, right? We're going to take this from you. Yeah, and they do call him a dreamer. Here in, in Mitchell's translation, it reads, look, here comes the dreamer. Yeah. Now's our chance. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these pits yeah. and say that a wild beast ate him. Then we'll see what good his dreams are. So then they they throw him in the pit. They decide, uh, let's not kill him. Let's go back and get him out and sell him. In the meantime, somebody else, some Midianites got him out and ended up selling him. Narrative seems a little odd. So in the story, they don't know what happened to Joseph. They make up the fact that he was killed by putting blood on the coat and taking it to their father, which again is sort of alludes to the fact that Jacob deceived his father with a piece of clothing, right? He put on the the sheep's skin to make it seem like he was hairy. And so now Jacob's being deceived by this piece of clothing that's brought to him by his his sons. Now, Ben, who are these Midianites? You know, as, as Mitchell has it, Joseph's brothers sell him to Ishmaelites. Well, 
they're going to sell them to the Ishmaelites, but they go to get him and he's not there because the Midianites have taken him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. So it says here, they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels carrying gum, balm, resin on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. To the Ishmaelites or to the Midianites? The Midianites sold him to the Ishmaelites. Oh, okay. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where can I turn? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They had the long robe with sleeves taken to their father, and they said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robe or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Right. So that's interesting, Ben. You know, usually these things come up in our pre-show discussion before we hit record. <laughs> as, as Mitchell has it, they looked up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead on their way down to Egypt, their camels loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother and covering up his blood? Why not sell him to these Ishmaelites? Let us not harm him. After all, he is our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. And they pulled Joseph up out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who brought Joseph to Egypt. Interesting. Then they took Joseph's coat and slaughtered a kid and etc. So the Midianites don't enter into the story in that translation at all. No. And the way you, you know, what you read seemed muddled. It does. You know, the Ishmaelites and then the Midianites and the Ishmaelites, why not just Ishmaelites? Yeah, that's interesting. Well, I mean, there there could be a bit of a weaving of a narrative in here that seeks to soften the responsibility of what happened to Joseph on his brothers. You know, by saying the Midianites are the ones that actually pulled him out and sold him. Yes, the brothers intended to, but they didn't actually do it. And so... It's possible that that putting that in there was a way of softening the guilt or the the accusation on the brothers for doing it. I'm not sure. And those the Midianites come from Midian is the son of Abraham and Keturah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. That's something maybe we would have looked into further if we, if we had noticed the difference. Yeah. <laughs> earlier. So he he gets to Egypt, he's sold to Potiphar says he's an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, okay? So repeated in this story of, of Joseph that, that continues from here is this phrase multiple times I, I highlighted it. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with him. But the Lord was with Joseph because the Lord was with him. And so constantly, anytime something seems to be happening to Joseph that is either good or bad, it says the Lord was with him. And this kind of reminds me back when Jacob goes to Bethel and he he wrestles with God. And then later he says, God was here and I knew it not. And he's recognizing, Jacob's recognizing it after the fact, right? Like 
oh, you know, God really was here with me in, in all of my moments of distress and, and, and even, you know, moments of elation. Whereas in this narrative, Joseph is recognizing that the Lord is with him all the time. He's not forgetting. And so again, I think this is part of painting Joseph's character as that of, of being more, maybe more pious in some respects, but, but certainly one who, who is more dedicated to the Lord, dedicated to the God of Israel, right? And so again, sort of solidifying that claim on him as, as the true heir. The other thing in this narrative that does this is the story of Joseph with Potiphar's wife. And this is contrasted against the story of Judah, who seems to engage in that sexual impropriety. There's other instances here, but it also contrasts with Reuben, who goes in unto his father's concubine, and then again Judah. And so then we get this story of Joseph, who has this opportunity with Potiphar's wife, and he refuses it. And his refusal isn't that of some allegiance to a family or a custom, right? Because we talked earlier about how the the brothers of Dinah said, this thing just isn't done, right? This shouldn't be done. And and that's sort of a an appeal to to custom and tradition and and the way that things are supposed to be done. Whereas Joseph's appeal here seems to be a little bit different. So the wife of Potiphar says, um, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look with me here. My master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So again, Joseph is evoking his obligation and allegiance to God here more than an allegiance to some family tradition or, or custom that might have been uh, alluded to in, in previous chapters. It's interesting, you know, and again, in Mitchell, he says, but he refused and said, please, madam, my master has trusted me with everything in this house. He has had nothing back from me but you, since you are his wife. How can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And there's no mention of anybody being above anybody else at all. What do you mean by that? Anybody being above anybody else? You you read in in the translation. You read that no what nobody is above anybody else in the house. Oh, he is not greater in this house than I am. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's interesting because the things that that are missing in this translation that are if I if we want to put it that way that are what are you reading King James NRSV right now. They seem like something that someone would add. So I don't know what Mitchell did. I know he's, I, I know his style. He probably went back and looked at these texts and said, "Now nah, somebody added this." You know, mm-hmm. it's it's probably the way he read it. Trying to trying to purify some author in particular or something. Yeah, and and sometimes you know, it's some of these things they sound a little prolix for the Bible. The, the Bible tends to be very compressed. Mm-hmm. You know, the language is very very compressed, and so. Those look like expansions to me. That's interesting. Mm. So at, at one point, Potiphar's wife grabs Joseph, and in order to get away, he leaves his garment in her hand, you know, probably like a coat, right? Or, or, a, or a cloak or something. 
again, this is an echo of the theme where he was stripped of his coat by his brothers and left to die. And so in order to get out of these situations, he is divested of these these things that were given him, this authority that was given him, this power that was given him, that's taken away from him unjustly. And Joseph just goes with the flow, so to speak, right? It says the Lord was with him. So he's put in prison and says the Lord was with him in prison. And he seems to have this knack for just rising to the top, no matter what situation he's, he's in. Again, this is all about the narrative of Joseph being of royal blood. He's the one who always comes out as obviously the greater person, the Ubermensch, right? The, you know, he, he is superhuman in a sense. And no matter what situation he's in, he always ends up becoming the leader, becoming on top, because his greatness, his, his virtue, so to speak, is, is recognized by anybody that ends up spending any amount of time around him. I wanted to point out a difference, uh, again, between this narrative and the narrative in the Quran, in which doesn't look like his clothes stay behind, hmm. right? Rather, they're torn. Yeah. And so it becomes, uh, it becomes a question later on, are they torn from the front or the back? Ah. And if they're torn from the back, then he was trying to get away. The Bible does say she grabbed him by the clothes, right? Interesting. Okay. And so th- then there's that question, are they torn from the front or from the back? Yeah. And then it's interesting because it, they are torn from the back and he goes to prison by his own choice. He wants to be put in prison and it's for his own protection. It's interesting how the how the narrative is a little different. Yeah, so there is one, and I don't remember where I got this narrative from, but in one of the, uh, again, this could be some story that someone wrote based on the text, but in one of the ones that I read, it was that Potiphar actually knew that his wife was promiscuous. And so he totally believed Joseph and knew that Joseph was right, but he he couldn't dishonor his wife in that way. And so he had to send Joseph to prison reluctantly. Interesting. So what kind of comes out later is that there, there's something said in the text that Joseph's wife, Asenath, is the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So the idea is that there might be some uh, marriage relation, familial relation between Potiphar and Potiphera that Joseph married into that. And so after he got out of prison, that Potiphar still didn't have anything necessarily against him and allowed him to marry into the family. Anyway, that's a kind of a stretch there, but that becomes brought into some of the narratives that get overlaid on the top of this story to try to explain more about what's going on. And I think the idea of the the garment being torn becomes consistent with the idea that his coat not only had blood on it, but Jacob says that Joseph must have been torn by a wild animal. So even though it doesn't say the garment is torn, the idea is that the garment is torn or damaged in some way. It sounds like it. And so again, we have this this repetition of that theme that the garment is used by the brothers, this torn garment is used by the brothers as false evidence of something that happens to Joseph. And then later we have Potiphar's wife, the garment's torn, it's used as false evidence of Joseph, you know, making inappropriate advances. In the Book of Mormon, to return to that theme, we actually have a chapter in the war chapters of of Moroni, when Captain Moroni tears his coat and writes the 
title of liberty on it, all the people come and they tear their clothes. This is a token of, a, of an oath that they're making. And they tear their clothes and they say, we're a remnant of the seed of Joseph. Remember this idea that that's their identity, that they are descendants of Joseph? And they say, we're a remnant of the seed of Joseph. And, and they tear their clothes and they say, may we perish like the garment if we aren't true to our oath. Anyway, there's more in that narrative in the Book of Mormon about that idea. But again, the concept here is that there is some tearing going on of these garments. Reuben tears his clothes when he finds out that Joseph's gone out of the pit. Jacob tears his clothes when he believes Joseph has died. His tearing of the garments is this recurring theme. Yeah, so in, in the Quranic narrative, Potiphar's wife admits her wrongdoing, and Joseph chooses to go to prison over what she suggests. And what is that? What do you mean, goes, choose to go to prison over what she suggests? So in the, in the Quranic narrative, reading from the translation of Abdul Halim from Oxford University Press, when the husband saw that the shirt was torn at the back, he said, this is another instance of women's treachery. Your treachery is truly great. Joseph overlooked this, but you, meaning his wife, ask forgiveness for your sin. You have done wrong. And then it's, this is interesting. This is something completely, this is not contemplated at all in the biblical narrative. Some women of the city said the governor's wife is trying to seduce her slave. Love for him consumes her heart. It is clear to us that she has gone astray. When she heard their malicious talk, she prepared a banquet and sent for them, giving each of them a knife. She said to Joseph, come out and show yourself to them. And when the women saw him, they were stunned by his beauty and cut their hands, exclaiming, Great God, he cannot be mortal. He must be a precious angel. She said, This is the one you blamed me for. I tried to seduce him, and he wanted to remain chaste. But if he does not do what I command now, he will be put in prison and degraded. Joseph said, My Lord, I would prefer prison to what these women are calling me to do. If you do not protect me from their treachery, I shall yield to them and do wrong. And the Lord answered his prayer and protected him from their treachery. He is the all-hearing, the all-knowing. Okay, so the idea here is that he would be given over to these women? Right. And so, he, you know, that he would actually submit to her command to sleep with her, right? And so in, in the end, it says, in the end, they thought it best after seeing all the signs of his innocence that they should imprison him for a while. Interesting. And then, of course, he goes to prison with two other young men. Yeah, so we have the two officers. The In the KJV, uh, we've got the butler and the baker. No candlestick maker. <laughs> anyway, in the NRSV, it, instead of butler, it says the cupbearer, which uh, I thought was, was an interesting thing to, to think through. You know, So the cupbearer for a king or for Pharaoh would be the one responsible, obviously, for giving him his cup. But I think the idea behind this in... A royal court would be that that person is sort of the food taster, at least the wine taster. They are supposed to drink it first, make sure that it's not poisoned. And so, you know, he's going to take the cup, drink from it a little bit, then give it to the king. So he's in a, in a position of responsibility. You know, he's obviously in a position of risk, danger, because he could be poisoned, but it's also a position of trust because he could poison after he drinks from it. And so he would have to be someone who is, is somewhat trusted. Somehow he's lost the trust of the Pharaoh and he's in prison. And that's where he meets Joseph. 
Yeah, Joseph does tell him later on that he will bring Pharaoh his cup, right? Yeah. That's in, in King James, right? So we see the idea that he does bring, he is the bearer of the cup of the Pharaoh. Yes, yeah. And so here we have another iteration of these dual dreams. So, you know, at the beginning of this story of Joseph, he has the two dreams, the one of the sheaves in the field, and then the one of the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're, they're two dreams that kind of mean the same thing, just given in a little bit different ways. And then here we have sort of a different iteration of this, where you have the dream of the butler and the dream of the baker, and slightly different things happen to him. But the dreams seem to always come in pairs with Joseph. And then we get to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has these two dreams that are also a pair. So this kind of thing recurs. As the story goes, Joseph interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Cupbearer ends up going back to work for the Pharaoh. The baker is hanged. This basically legitimizes Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And so the idea is that years later, when the cupbearer or the butler is in the service of Pharaoh and Pharaoh has these dreams about these cows that come out of the river and the thin ones devour the fat ones and then the thin ears of grain devour the fat ears of grain. He has this dream. He doesn't know what it means. The butler remembers Joseph can interpret dreams. So then Joseph comes, interprets the dream as the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Pharaoh says, what should we do? Joseph said, here you go. This is what you should do. Get somebody to be in charge of all this and save up the grain. Pharaoh says, well, you're obviously the wisest one. Right? This is hearkening back to the idea that Joseph really is deserving of a, of a kingship because he is the wisest and greatest and, and, and obviously the, the one who deserves this uh, inheritance. So Pharaoh gives it to him and he becomes, you know, in charge of all of Egypt. He's just, you know, Pharaoh's right-hand man, so to speak. Right. And so now he's invested again with power. And if the text, whether the text tells us so or not, there's going to be a robe. Yep, there's going to be a robe. He definitely gets a ring. Um, you know, that's the first thing that's given to him. That's a, a symbol of of his power. And that matches up again with um, with Judah, right? Right. Except that his ring isn't found any more than his coat or his clothes with Potiphar's wife. Right. Unlike Judah and Temer. He gets an Egyptian name. He marries an Egyptian. This is marrying outside of the family, so to speak, right? This has become a theme with the heir. The heir is not supposed to marry outside of the family. But Joseph does, which is an, an interesting departure from that idea. But there's no condemnation of this fact here. In fact, the, the sons of Joseph that are born to Asenath, the, the Egyptian, are the legitimate heirs of, of his uh, inheritance as well. And so, again, this is an interesting departure from, from that idea of marrying within the quote-unquote covenant, right? Right. And then, of course, Joseph is going to be offered a wife, uh, probably a royal, right? Yeah. Just like Abraham, uh, I mentioned the, the slave that's given to Abraham, uh, Hajat, right, yeah. is uh, a royal in Egypt. She's a princess. Right. At least according to the Islamic tradition. Yeah. Well, again, I, I'm going to bring up Book of Mormon. You know, when Ammon goes to preach to the Lamanites, he goes into King Lamoni. And one of the things, first thing King Lamoni does when he decides he likes Ammon is he says, hey, marry one of my daughters. Right. 
it's an honor, right, that, that is being bestowed upon him. You're going to become part of the family. I mean, what greater honor can you have than that? Exactly. So uh, we get Ephraim and Manasseh born to him. And again, we have these names that have meaning, uh, meaning in the narrative and, and life and, and uh, experience of Joseph. Firstborn Manasseh, which has something to do with forgetting or making to forget. And the idea here in the text is that he says, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. So it's it's kind of a twofold thing here. You know, not only has he forgotten his hardship, but he says, I've also forgotten my father's house, which would be something to grieve, but then forgetting his hardship would be something to celebrate. And so it's, it's this bittersweet type of thing. Um, then we get the second son, who's Ephraim, which has to do with being made fruitful. And again, the idea that Joseph is the one who inherits this responsibility to multiply and replenish the earth, right? So that's that's Ephraim. Again, we have the returning of this idea, and this is going to come up in, in later chapters, that Ephraim, even though he's the second son, what happens when when Joseph goes to bless them is he crosses his hands and ends up blessing Ephraim in the place of, of Manasseh. But he gives them both a similar blessing. It's just that Ephraim has, is put ahead of Manasseh in terms of the birthright. And that's why in the Latter-day Saint tradition, we look at, at Ephraim as being the one with the, the greater, quote-unquote, portion of the birthright. Manasseh is still blessed with the same blessing, just supposedly doesn't have the same level of responsibility there. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but that's the idea. The double here. portion? Yeah. Okay. And this seems to be hearkening back to, you know, Joseph recognizing that he is a younger brother, but still is deserving of that. And so it's almost like he's he's passing on that tradition of, well, the younger brother is the one who actually should should be the, the most deserving. So sure enough, the famine happens, seven years of, of plenty where they store up the grain, and then seven years of famine where all the land around comes, not just Egypt, but all the lands around come to Egypt to buy grain. This, All of this has set the stage for Israel and all of his sons, for the whole house of Israel, as we call it at this point, to come into Egypt. Wait, next week on Latter-day Peace Studies Presents, come follow me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. To be continued. Right. You know, we finish the book of Genesis next time. The stage is completely set for Exodus. We're going back to the beginning of the story. So yeah, Any, anything else from this, uh, Christopher, or from the Quran that you thought we should bring in this time? Or, or is the, the other things stuff that we would bring in next time? No, I think uh, that's all for this week. To be continued. Okay. I look great. forward to it. Yeah, again, the story of Joseph is, I think, a much more sensical in terms of being able to, to get this continuous narrative the other chapters that we treat in this have odd stories in them, some of the things we don't know what to do with, but uh, they're interesting, to say the least. <laughs> well, and we got through the end of the Jacob cycle, too. If we didn't read chapter 35, we don't see the end of the Jacob cycle and the beginning of the Joseph cycle. Right. Yeah. All right. So we'll sign off um, for Latter-day Peace Studies. I'm Ben Peterson. I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.